Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Three, two, one. But I've worked it out. I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer Jim Calhoun. NASCAR icon Dale Earnhardt Jr. Kirk Herbstreet is on the phone. Welcome in, everybody. Here. Episode 5. Dale of the podcast. In Swimming America, the Air Tour Sports Podcast. It is Monday. March 21st, 2022, people. I hope everybody's doing well. I hope everybody's having a great day. I hope everybody is ready for a jam-packed episode of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. We will have complete reaction to the opening weekend of the NCAA tournament. The Sweet 16 is set, and we got a ton to talk about. We're going to open with the last game of the weekend, Arizona TCU controversial absolute thriller. We're going to break that one down because to me that was the story and the game of the tournament so far. From there, we will get to the SEC's disappointing weekend. Listen, when I sit here and I praise, praise, praise the SEC, and you have Auburn out early, you have Kentucky out early, you have Tennessee out early down to one SEC team, we will talk about that. We'll talk about a little bit about the disappointing Big Ten. We'll talk about Duke advancing. Coach K's career goes on for one more weekend. Really fun episode. We'll actually wrap a little bit, too, with some coaching carousel stuff. There were some transactional moves over the weekend. Florida has a new head coach, Sean Miller, back in college basketball. Uh, and Mississippi State, out of nowhere, hired a really good coach. So we'll talk about that at the back end. But with that said, let's get to the topic of the day. And the topic of the day in the grand bigger picture is that the first weekend of the NCAA tournament is over. And as I said, we are down to 16 teams. For those of you whose teams have been eliminated, the UConn fans, the Kentucky fans, uh, the Tennessee fans, first of all, as a UConn alum, I feel your pain. But for everybody else, there are 16 teams left. And I'll say this, we got a great weekend of college basketball. And what I would also say is this is that as of about, I don't know, 11 or 11.30 Eastern time, I didn't know what I was going to lead this show with. I was kind of sitting there thinking, okay, is the biggest story the SEC? Is the biggest story St. Peter's? Is the biggest story the Big 12? At the time, there was a thought that the ACC at one point in the day on Sunday might get four teams into the Sweet 16. And I'm sitting there saying, what the heck am I going to talk about? And then, Sunday night, well after midnight Eastern, many of you are bleary-eyed or you just missed the game altogether. 
We got the single best game of the tournament. I hope you stayed up. I know many of you didn't, though. Arizona versus TCU in San Diego. Final score in overtime. Arizona 85, TCU 80. As I said, this game just had it all. Wild rallies, wild comebacks, big shots, stars emerging from nowhere, and there was absolute controversy at the end, at least the end of regulation. And so let's talk about it because this game had it all. It was the game of the NCAA tournament. And let me start by saying this. Okay, when I filled out the bracket, if you go back to last Wednesday's show, I did think that when I looked at this matchup, there was a scenario where TCU could keep things interesting, okay? TCU, much like Memphis against Gonzaga, this is a matchup-based tournament. And the matchup with TCU on Arizona, I thought, was something that could give us somewhat of an interesting game, okay? We've all seen Arizona all year. We all know that when they are operating at the highest level, they can at times just absolutely embarrass people. But if you looked at TCU's resume, first of all, played in the Big 12. I, crit I criticize a lot of things. There's no telling. The, the truth of the matter is the Big 12 is as good as any conference of college basketball. 18 games. Uh, everybody plays everybody twice. I talked about it with Texas Tech last week. There is no hiding in the Big 12. You have to play a big game every single night. And so I knew that playing in the Big 12 was going to pre prepare TCU for the NCAA tournament. On top of that, this was a team that was trending in the right direction late in the season beat Kansas the second to last week of the regular season, had to play Kansas again the following week at Fog Allen Fieldhouse and almost pulled off the upset, gets to the Big 12 tournament, beats Texas in the opener, loses to Kansas again. But the bottom line was this was a team that was playing really well coming into this tournament. And on top of that, they were a team that I thought could give Arizona trouble because of the way that they play. They were a great rebounding team. Entering the game, TCU actually was third in the country in rebound rate. What that means is the uh, of all the rebounds that go up over the course of an entire game, the, there were only two teams in the country all season long that grabbed a higher percentage of total rebounds than TCU. Yes, that's nerdy. Yes, it's silly. But it's an important indicator that this was the kind of team with how they rebounded, with how they played defense, with the toughness that they have, with the experience that they have playing big games in the Big 12 against all those good teams. You thought, OK, this can at least be competitive. What I did not expect, though, was the best game of the tournament and certainly not the way that things went down. TCU opens the game. They take complete control early. They go up 10 to 2 and you're sitting there saying, oh, my God. Oh my goodness, who is this team? Arizona, to its credit, stays calm. Arizona stays cool. Arizona actually goes to its bench and brings in Kirk Creesa. For those of you who don't know, Kirk Creesa was the point guard that got hurt in the Pac-12 tournament. I've been talking about him a lot on this show. Well, he makes his return about the middle of the first half in this game, and it was at that point that it seemed like, okay, Arizona's got this. They're under control. They get back to doing the things that they did when we thought that they were one of the two or three best teams in the country. They go into halftime with the lead. Of course, what happens after halftime? TCU comes back out. TCU punches back. TCU has a lead for a while. But then, again, Arizona takes control, and they are up by as many as eight points with six minutes to go. Seven minutes to go, excuse me. So right under the eight-minute timeout, Arizona is up by eight, and you think they're in complete control? Oh, no, 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 no. That was when the game was just getting started. TCU comes all the way back. Eight-point deficit rallies, takes a lead, 
Ben Matherin, the Arizona star, hits a three to tie things up in the final couple seconds of the game. That is where we get to a little bit of controversy, okay? That is where we get to a little bit of controversy because on the final play of the game, if you've seen highlights, I guarantee you have seen this play because it is the talking point coming out of this game. But in the final play of the game, TCU's Mike Miles, guard, really, really, really talented player, gets the ball, trying to make a play, goes, you know, kind of dribbling around half court, tries to turn a corner. He's kind of defended by Arizona players. Ball squeaks out. Ball gets to Arizona. Arizona goes in for a layup at the buzzer. It goes in, but it's no good. It goes in, but the clock has expired and we're headed to overtime. And so I would be remiss if I didn't very briefly talk about that final play of regulation. A lot of people, especially non-Arizona fans, say it was a foul. You have to call a foul, or at the very least, it's one of two things. It's either a foul or it's an over, you know, it's an over and over and back, a backcourt, and Arizona should have gotten the ball with a couple seconds left and a chance to win the game in regulation. What I would say is listen. It wasn't the perfect call. It wasn't the perfect play. And in a sport where we go to the monitor all the time, I'll readily admit, I was a little bit surprised that they did not go to the monitor. At the same time, what I would also say is this. We as fans have clamored for years and years and years for the referees to stay out of the deciding moments of games, to stay out of the big plays, and to let the players decide it on the court. And so while, yes, there maybe should have been a foul call, yes, there maybe should have been an over and back call, what I would also say is if you're criticizing the refs in that moment, you got to criticize them in every other game as well. And so, yes, there was a missed call, but I'd rather there be a missed call in a tie game that forces overtime and you let the guys decide it rather than calling a foul with two seconds left with Arizona's season on the line or an over the back where Arizona can set up a play to potentially win in regulation. Maybe that's critical, maybe that's controversial, maybe that's whatever, but this is what you guys have been telling me. The refs are too involved. There's too many calls. If that's the case, then you gotta deal with it. In overtime, it's, it remains back and forth, but Arizona eventually pulls away, and I am just telling you, this was one of the great games in recent NCAA tournament history. I can't really think of a better one dating back, you know, three, four, five years. I'm sure there have been plenty, but I just can't think of one off the top, one that had everything that it did, lead changes, comebacks, big plays, big shots, Ben Matherin, et cetera, et cetera. In terms of the bigger picture of the game, I think there are three things that really kind of stand out to me about this game, okay? So first of all, I just mentioned the name Ben Matherin, and if you have not watched Arizona, Ben Matherin has been their star all year. Ben Matherin is a freaking superstar, and Ben Matherin became a college basketball household name that is also now a, 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 a household name for NBA draft junkies that are looking for somebody on their team for next season. He finished the game with 30 points, 8 of 19 from the field, 11 of 13 from, from the free throw line, 8 rebounds, 4 assists, 2 steals. And when I tell you this guy made every single big play, this guy made every single big play of this game. He hit the three that, that forced a tie in regulation that eventually led to overtime. He had a big offensive rebound in overtime that led to a putback. He hit a big three in overtime. I mean, this guy was incredible. And when I look at him, I think of something 
that my buddy Doug Gottlieb says. Okay, Doug Gottlieb, obviously college basketball analyst, Fox Sports radio host. I just hosted his show last week while he was doing some college basketball stuff. But I bring it up to say one thing that Doug always says is that one of the problems with college basketball, with the NBA, the way that things are currently constituted, is that too often guys rush the process. They want to rush to the NBA. They want to skip steps. They don't want to do everything necessary, and they want to get out of college basketball as quickly as possible. And I'm a little bit paraphrasing Doug's point here. I don't want to speak for Doug, but I think his point is the value of playing college basketball and the value sometimes of returning to college basketball after a so-so freshman year, a so-so sophomore year, whatever, is to learn how to become a star to learn what it's like to have every team game plan for you, to have every team's best player defending you. And I thought Ben Matherin is a great example of that, and I actually think there's a couple great examples of that across college basketball this year, whether it is Jaden Ivey, whether it is Johnny Davis, whether it is Keegan Murray. These are guys that came back that some of them, Ben Matherin included, would have been drafted had he declared for the NBA draft last year, but came back learn how to be a star, put a team on his back, and I'm just telling you, he is going to make a lot more money by having come back and played an extra year of college basketball because this guy became a star on a national stage, but more importantly, has learned how to become a star, learn how to want the ball in big moments. And if you look at the NBA right now, a lot of the guys that are having a ton of success are guys that have taken a similar path. John Morant, could have left after his freshman year, would have been drafted, came back as a sophomore, tore things up, became a superstar, goes to the NBA. Steph Curry could have left after that magical run in 2008, decides to come back, decides to be a star, 2009 he gets drafted. So I could go on and on. James Harden's another guy. You can criticize James Harden for what you want. Two years of college basketball, could have left after his freshman year, comes back as a sophomore. So I don't want to belabor the point, but I do think there is something to it. Ben Matherin is an absolute superstar. He took over that game late. Credit to him. In terms of Arizona, what I would say in terms of Arizona is this. Um, Every year, essentially, maybe not last year with Baylor, because Baylor was just a juggernaut, but for the most part, every single year in the tournament, and I know you guys and girls watch the tournament. You wouldn't be listening to this podcast otherwise. Every team that wins the championship, there's always one game throughout the tournament that you just sit there and say, we don't know how we won that, but we got darn lucky. We're going to survive. We're going to advance. We're not going to ask too many questions, and we're going to move on to the next one. It's almost like every single team that wins the championship, you got to have a game or two where you just get a break or two that allows you to advance to the next round. Go back to Virginia in 2019. If you remember, very questionable call against Auburn in the Final Four. Crazy play at the end of the Purdue game in the Elite Eight which allowed them to go to overtime where they beat Purdue. So Virginia has a couple crazy things break their way on the way to a national championship. Um, You know, you go back, uh, I, I can't think of other stuff off the top of my head, but the bottom line is most teams that win a national championship, there's at least one game that you just sit there and say, we had no business winning that one, but we'll take it, we'll keep our mouth shut, and we'll move on to the next one. And I do think this was the one for Arizona. Not saying they're going to win a national championship. I don't know if they're favored. I know that they have a very tough matchup with Houston in the next game. But the bottom line is every single team has one game where man, oh man, oh man, you just got to survive, keep your mouth shut, advance, and move on to the next one. Finally, last thought on this game. I'd be remiss if I didn't give a ton of credit to TCU. I know I said it off the top. I know I said that 
They were a team and a program that really, you looked at them and you thought maybe they had a shot, but I don't think that anybody thought it was at all possible that they could do what they did, forcing overtime and having a chance to win late. Specifically, I feel like when it comes to TCU, you need to give credit to two guys. One, their best guard, his name's Mike Miles, was making all sorts of plays late. But two, on top of that, I would also say they had a center named Eddie Lampkin who was an absolute monster down low. And this guy, to me, epitomizes everything that is great about March Madness, okay? I remember during the summer, I had to talk to Jamie Dixon, uh, the head coach of TCU, about something related to his team. And he mentioned me, he goes, oh yeah, we got this kid, Eddie Lampkin. He didn't really play last year, but he has lost, check this out, he has lost 70 pounds. I'll never forget the way that Jamie Dixon told me this. He goes, he has lost 70 pounds, 7-0. And he says to me, this is almost verbatim, he goes, and that's not one of those, we're making it up to make ourselves look good. We have the before and after pictures, okay? So this kid barely plays last year, has lost 70 pounds since he got to campus. This guy was a monster for TCU on Sunday night. 20 points, 14 rebounds, and to me, this guy epitomizes everything that's great about college basketball. We focus on the one and done. We focus on Duke. We focus on Kentucky. We focus on the NBA draft picks. We focus on the big programs. How about a guy from TCU that was 350, 360 pounds when he arrived on campus, turning into one of the most unstoppable forces in the NCAA tournament? With that said, he was great, but Arizona advances. One last thought on Arizona. I'd be remiss if I did not mention Christian Coloco, their starting center, played the game of his life as well. 28 points, 12 boards, three blocks. This was a game of a lifetime. I mean, this game was just incredible. I hope all of you stayed up. I know all of you couldn't because of work obligations, but when I tell you this was one of the all-time great tournament games, this was one of the all-time great tournament games. Yes, it was controversial at the end. No, I'm not upset about it. Yes, if you're a TCU fan, I understand your frustration, but this man, this was just an all-timer. Now Arizona survives in advance to move to the Sweet 16. Really quickly, let's get to some other stories. And what I would say is outside of this Arizona thing, the one thing that really stuck out to me, now listen, we're not, I'm not going to bury the lead and tell you that the SEC wasn't awful this weekend because they were. We're going to get to that in a minute. But the one thing that really stood out to me about this weekend in general is this, is it's what I said during the bracket show on Wednesday when I revealed my pick. I said that, look, most years there's this narrative and it's pushed by the same two or three guys. We know who they are. It's Jay Billis. It's Dick Vitale. And I love Dick Vitale. I know he's been sick. I'm glad he's getting better. But there's always this narrative of like, the tournament's so wide open and anyone can win it. And like, most years, I think that's just a bunch of nonsense. Like, I, I just, I don't buy that narrative. I think it's a dumb narrative. And history tells us, as I've told you many times, that basically, if you're not a number one seed, or you don't have a guy that can take over in the tournament like Kemba Walker or Shabazz Napier, you're not winning the championship. Most years, the, the experts will tell you, oh, 20 teams can win it, 30 teams can win it. When in reality, it's about three, four, five teams that can win it. I bring it up because on last Wednesday's show, what did I tell you? I said, look, I know I make fun of Jay Billis when he says stuff like that, but this is the year that I actually believe that that is accurate, that maybe there aren't 20 teams that can win it, but there's like 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 teams that can win it, and if you go back to when the bracket was announced, we talked about it. Purdue was a team that all year long we thought might be in line to get a number one seed. They end up on the three line. Tennessee was a three seed that was probably closer to a one seed than they were a three seed. 
And so I bring it up because on, you know, whatever we are, Sunday night now, when I sit back and look back on the first full weekend, it very much confirms what I thought, that this tournament really is wide open. There really are probably no great teams, not even Arizona, Gonzaga, and Kansas, the three number one seeds that advanced, and that this really has turned into one of the crazier opening weekends we've ever had. I know every year we say, oh, it's the craziest opening weekend ever. Well, let's just think about this. Coming out of the first weekend, here is who we don't have. We lost one number one seed, Baylor, to North Carolina in one of the craziest, quirkiest, goofiest games that I can ever remember. I don't even want to talk about it because I thought it was terrible. I heard a lot of people, oh my God, it was such a crazy game. It was an awful game. It was actually a terrible game. But we had one number one seed out. By the way, worth noting, all three other number one seeds were pushed down to the wire. Kansas barely held on against Creighton. Uh, Arizona, I just talked about against TCU. Gonzaga really struggled with Memphis, which we'll talk about in a little bit. One number one seed's gone. All three other number two seeds are gone. Or all, all three number one seeds struggled outside of that number one seed. On top of that, two two seeds are gone. Kentucky and Auburn. We'll talk about them in a minute. Two number three seeds are gone. Tennessee and Wisconsin. We'll talk about Tennessee in a minute. It now leads us to a Sweet 16 that includes a number 15 seed, St. Peter's, the Peacocks, Carlton Banks walking through with that Peacock. Uh, unbelievable. 15 seed. St. Peter's is in the Sweet 16. Two number 11 seeds, Iowa State, just an incredible story in their own right. Two wins last year during COVID. Fire their head coach, Steve Prohm. Hire TJ Otzelberger. He comes in and he has them in the Sweet 16. Michigan, who took care of Tennessee, also in the Sweet 16. And a number 10 seed, Miami, also headed to the Sweet 16. We will actually have a 10 versus 11 matchup to go to the Elite Eight with Miami facing off against Iowa State in the Sweet 16. With that said, I think as we kind of break down everything else that happened on over the course of the first weekend in the NCAA tournament, we just talked about Arizona, best game of the tournament so far. What I would say is this, outside of the fact that it's been crazy and I just kind of li listed some stuff out, what I would say is that probably the single biggest story is, I hate to say it, the SEC's actually been terrible, okay? So let's get into that because what I will say is this, right? One thing about me, you can like me, you can dislike me, you can agree, you can disagree, but one thing about me is that when I mess something up, I will come on the airwaves and tell you I messed up. I will take an L, like Tennessee took an L this week, like Auburn took an L this week, and like Kentucky took an L this week. And so to me, what I will tell you, I don't know if I was dead wrong about the SEC in terms of basketball. I still think that top four was really good. But when I come on these airwaves, when I come on to social media and I say the top four in the SEC is by far the best top four of anyone in college basketball, and then three of them are knocked out, well, I got to come on this show and take an L, and I was wrong about the SEC. In terms of this weekend specifically, look, we already talked about Kentucky. I don't think there is much to, to peel back there in terms of Kentucky. I do want to talk a little bit about Tennessee, though, because I know Auburn was the two seed, Tennessee was the three, but I think we all kind of thought that Tennessee was the better team coming into the tournament, coming off an SEC championship, final week, final couple weeks of the regular season, excuse me, they take care of Auburn at home, they take care of Arkansas at home, they beat Kentucky twice in the final two or three weeks of the regular season, and I think most of us thought that Tennessee was probably the best SEC team, or at least the SEC team playing the best coming into this week. Well, 
Kentucky goes up against Michigan, or Tennessee goes up against Michigan, excuse me, and takes a loss 76-68. to And so I want to talk about it, and what I want to say is this. This is one of those tough ones where I don't really know where to place blame, right? I think it's easy to place blame on Rick Barnes. Rick Barnes has a history of struggling in the NCAA tournament. We'll get to that in a minute. But this was also one where his players just didn't perform, right? So it's funny because I don't generally do this, but every once in a while, I will put up something on social media and then take it down. In general, when I do that, it is usually because there's a spelling error, there's a factual error, it's clunky, it's this, it's that. But on Saturday night, after Tennessee lost, I did put up a tweet about how bad Rick Barnes is in the NCAA tournament, and then I took it down. And I took it down because when I look back on the Michigan win over Tennessee, I just don't know how much of it is on Rick Barnes, okay? So Tennessee loses to Michigan 76-68. Let's talk about it. And what I would say is this. Yes, it continues the trend that Rick Barnes struggles in the NCAA tournament. We'll talk about that in a minute. But again, I just don't know how much of this is on Rick Barnes. Tennessee came in as one of the best three-point shooting teams in the SEC and one of the best three-point shooting teams over the course of the back half of the regular season. They finished this game 2 of 18 from the the three-point line. They finished 41% from the field. They got out-rebounded by Michigan. And so when I look at the narrative, I think sometimes us in the media, we like to cling on to a super easy narrative and we don't like to look at the context behind it, right? Like we like to look at the, 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 I don't know, the college football play. Oh, Notre Dame's overrated. It's like, is Notre Dame really overrated? Or, or do they just have limitations that LSU and Alabama and Oklahoma and Ohio State don't have? And I feel like it's kind of the same here with Tennessee. On the one hand, yes, Rick Barnes deserves blame. But on the other hand, how much blame can you really give a coach when he has a team that shoots 37% from three and goes two of 18 from three as well? Now, I also don't think Rick Barnes should be absolved from any blame. I did think there were some things tactically and coaching-wise that were it wasn't his best day. Uh, first of all, they do have a lot of size. It was really interesting. I was listening to some post-game Tennessee stuff when I was going in to do radio, and one thing that stood out to me while watching the game was Michigan has a great big man. He's actually been on this podcast before, Hunter Dickinson, and Hunter Dickinson just dominated 27 points, 11 rebounds. I actually thought Rick Barnes should go bigger. I thought he should go with a bigger lineup. Now, when I was listening to the post game, there was a lot of, well, you know, our best lineup is with four guards and a big guy. And it's like, no, you needed some bigger guys in there. So I can't say that Rick Barnes isn't at least responsible for some of what happened on Sunday, on Saturday. And it also doesn't take away from the fact that this is just a trend now with Rick Barnes. And I've tried to defend him. I've tried to say, look, Every year is different. Every circumstance is different. And sometimes narratives are just overblown, right? Matthew Stafford, Super Bowl, uh, can't get over the hump. Well, now he's with the Rams. Now he's awesome. And I kind of thought it was going to be the same with Rick Barnes. Maybe he just needed the right group of guys at the right time to get over the hump, and he would have success. He would get back to that Final Four, first one since 2002, and we would all forget about Rick Barnes' struggles in the NCAA tournament. Nope. Loses on the first weekend, and now this is the ninth time in his last 10 NCAA tournaments that he has failed to make the second weekend of the NCAA tournament. And as it pertains to being a Tennessee fan, what's especially frustrating is the last three times, the last, what, three, yeah, three times that he's made the NCAA tournament at Tennessee, it has ended in disappointing fashion, really, the last four times now that I think about it. You have this year where he lost as a three seed to a team in Michigan that was an 11 seed. 
Last year, of course, it was a little bit of a disappointing year, but it was COVID, it was whatever, it was this, it was that. They were the preseason SEC favorites. They lose in round one as a five seed to Oregon State. 2020, there's no NCAA tournament. 2019, that was, of course, the famous Grant Williams, Admiral Schofield year. Struggled down the stretch, end up as a three seed, end up losing to Purdue in the Sweet 16. Beyond that, uh, the year before, they lose to Sister Jean in the second round. And so it's kind of, listen, I will say this. I understand there's different expectations between, say, Kentucky and, say, Tennessee, but I crushed John Calipari on Thursday's show because we now have three straight NCAA tournaments where he has had a disappointing result, and it's the same for Rick Barnes. This is now his fourth NCAA tournament at Tennessee, the fourth straight time that he has lost a game that he probably shouldn't have or that you could consider disappointing. Now, nine of his last 10 NCAA tournaments, he has failed to make the second weekend. And oh, by the way, the one year that he did make the second weekend, it was the year with Grant Williams and Admiral Schofield in which they lost in a year where they had been the number one team in the country earlier that season. So I felt like I had to talk about Tennessee, felt like I had to talk a little bit about Rick Barnes. Uh, I can't crush John Calipari for 15 minutes to lead the show on on last Friday and not talk about Rick Barnes here. In terms of the other SEC teams, again, we talked about Kentucky the other day, um, but Auburn, I mean, I don't know what else there is to say about Auburn, and shame on me, and I really do blame myself on this one, because Auburn, over the last about five weeks of the season, they were not themselves. They were not the team that we saw early in the season that got to number one in the country, and so once the NCAA tournament bracket came out, I convinced myself that it doesn't matter, doesn't matter what they did in the SEC tournament, doesn't matter what they did in the end of the regular season. They have a path that is going to get them deep into this tournament. Oh, no, not at all. They lost to Miami on Sunday night, final score 79-61. to And what stands out to me about this game is the same problems that Auburn has essentially had all season long came to a head and came to fruition in this game. If you listen to this podcast, what is the biggest criticism of Auburn? They have maybe the best front court in all of college basketball, or they did have maybe the best front court in all of college basketball. Walker Kessler, SEC Defensive Player of the Year. Jabari Smith, potential number one pick in the draft. The problem is their guards are not good enough. Now, it's worth noting, the big guys weren't great on Sunday. Walker Kessler got in foul trouble from the beginning of the game, finished with two points. Jabari Smith, three of 16 from the field. But what this game came down to was... Miami's guards were simply better. In terms of Auburn, going back to, the, to, to what Auburn did, Zeb Jasper, their starting point guard, one for four from the field, four points, zero assists. Wendell Green, the guy that takes a lot of criticism because he takes a lot of shots, four of, fifth, four of 14 from the field, one of six from three, and as a team, they finished five of 26 from the field. And just overall, I thought that too many times throughout the game, the guards tried to do too much, And this goes back to what we talked about all year. Last little thought on Auburn, because it's time to move on from Auburn. We've talked about them enough this year during the the season. I will say this is kind of the gift and the curse of the portal, okay? And it's not a criticism of Auburn, because everybody's got to use the portal now, but you got to be careful who you bring in, and you got to be careful assuming that just because a guy has success somewhere that he's going to have success somewhere else. So I bring it up because a guy like Wendell Green, like I said, came came in through the portal, was really, really good at Eastern Kentucky last year. Well, he comes to Auburn, 
and you can kind of see that he's probably not really good enough, at least not right now, as a true sophomore to play at this level. Same with Zeb Jasper, who came from College of Charleston. So listen, I don't mean to belabor the point, but as far as Auburn's concerned, I did feel like I needed to talk about it. I can't brush over the SEC stinking when, oh, by the way, I've been giving them credit all season long. I will say in terms of the SEC, one last thought. Credit to Arkansas. The one SEC team that is carrying the banner for the entire conference right now, they advance against New Mexico State. Uh, wild game, weird game. Arkansas shoots 27% from the field against the same New Mexico State team that beat my UConn Huskies on Thursday night. Uh, but Arkansas survives. Arkansas advances. Arkansas is the last, the final SEC team in this tournament. Really quickly, uh, I'll just say the Big Ten, another disastrous year for the Big Ten. Two teams in the Sweet 16 after getting nine in the NCAA tournament field. And you look across the board, once again, teams are losing to higher seeds. We talked about Iowa as a five seed losing on the opening day. They lose to Richmond, who, oh, by the way, gets blown out by Providence later in the tournament. Illinois as a four seed loses to Houston. That was one I picked. I'm not totally surprised, but still. Illinois is a four seed regular season champ. Can't get out of the first round. Wisconsin, their starting point guard, Chucky Hepburn, got hurt during this game. Doesn't change the fact that Wisconsin, as a three seed, playing in the state of Wisconsin, in Milwaukee, with a National Player of the Year candidate in Johnny Davis, cannot get out of the first round. And so I'm not going to do the whole Big Ten thing, because I kind of did it with Iowa on last Friday's show. I do think it's worth noting, though. I do hope the committee is paying attention. I know that every year is independent of every other year, but it goes back to what I said on Friday's show. The way the Big Ten schedules puts them in position to get the most teams possible in this tournament. They play 20 league games. They play the Gavit games, which is the Big East Big Ten Challenge. They play the ACC Big Ten Challenge. Many of their teams play in the Maui Invitational, Battle for Atlantis, uh, whatever, wh whatever these preseason conference tournaments are. And what ends up happening is these Big Ten teams play more power conference teams throughout the course of the season than anybody else and that's what makes them look good in their computers didn't even mention Michigan State who I thought they actually played well we'll talk about them in a minute with Duke um, but Michigan State loses Ohio State loses as a seven seed and so I'm not going to belabor the point but I do hope that the NCAA selection committee really does take this into consideration next year not saying that a team like Purdue or Michigan State or even you know, Iowa, Wisconsin, whoever didn't deserve to be in. But when you're talking about a Rutgers team that can't win away from home, that had terrible losses, but they pick up a couple nice wins in Big Ten play, and you talk about putting them in. Michigan, I know they've had success once they got to the tournament. I don't really care. Them having success in the tournament, it's a lot like Notre Dame. Notre Dame almost beat Texas Tech on Sunday afternoon. It doesn't mean they should have been in the tournament, and it doesn't mean that Michigan should have been an 11 seed even if they got in. So I'm not going to belabor the point. I'm not going to go over it. But Michigan and Purdue are the only Big Ten teams that have advanced. Uh, credit to them. We'll see what happens. Michigan will be playing Villanova in the Sweet 16. I will say, I don't think that's a terrible matchup for Michigan. Uh, Purdue is the one that, that has the unlucky draw of playing the St. Peter's Peacocks. By the way, that game is in Philadelphia. That's like an hour away from St. Peter's campus. St. Peter's only has 2,600 students on campus, so I don't know if every single one plans on being there, but I'm just kind of jumping around now. But that's what comes to mind with the Big Ten. Um, you know, we're down to two teams, 
18 teams in the tournament the last two years. Three advanced to the second weekend. Michigan last year, Michigan and Purdue this year. Finally, be remiss if I didn't talk a little bit of ACC, right? Because I crushed the ACC throughout the regular season. And the ACC was actually pretty good in this tournament. They got four teams into the tournament. How about this? They get four teams into the tournament. And if you include Notre Dame, which won a play-in game, all four ACC teams won two games. So Notre Dame won a play-in game, and then they beat Alabama in round one. They lose to Texas Tech on Sunday. Miami took care of business in round one against USC, beats Auburn on Sunday. North Carolina beats Baylor. We'll get to them in a minute. And Duke advances past Michigan State to the Sweet 16. So in total, three ACC teams are in the Sweet 16. That trails only, well, actually, it's the same as the Big 12 that has three with Kansas, Iowa State, and Texas Tech. The ACC, how about the ACC with three teams? In terms of the games themselves, you know, listen, I, I guess Duke was the biggest story. I'll just give Duke credit, okay? I'll give Duke credit because a couple things. One, the thing that stands out to me about that Duke game, about this Duke season really, it's been very interesting to me to watch the reaction to the Coach K retirement tour. We've talked about it. We've thought about it. What's it going to be like? All that good stuff. We acknowledge that Duke probably has the most talented roster in college basketball, five guys that are probably going to be first-round picks. I haven't heard anybody make the argument that Duke is going to go to New Orleans and win the national championship. With that said, though, I do give them credit. I know it's easy to crush Duke. I know it's easy to criticize Duke, whatever. But they were on the ropes late in that game, and there was a moment where I actually thought Duke was going to lose to Michigan State. If you watch the game, I will tell you what, what I thought was really the turning point in that game. So Duke, it's back and forth. Duke has a big lead, all this good stuff. And then Michigan State rallies to take the lead at one point with under two minutes to go, okay? Under two minutes to go, they're up 74 to 72. They make a layup. And I think, oh my goodness, Duke is going to lose this game. I am going to be talking about Coach K being out of college basketball. Duke is down by two with under two minutes to go after Michigan State makes a big play. They inbound the ball. They get the ball to Trevor Keels, their, their star point guard. Kentucky fans will remember from the opening night of the season. But Trevor Keels drives down. It was under three minutes to go. It was, it was an A.J. Hogard bucket with under three minutes to go. They're down two. And I see Duke grab the ball and sprint it up court. And right then I said, oh, my God, they're going to lose this game because they're playing scared. They're playing like freshmen. They're playing timid. They don't realize there's three minutes left and they're down two. They don't have to get a bucket this second. What ends up happening, Trevor Keels attacks the basket, ends up getting fouled, and makes a foul shot. Cuts the lead to one. But I only bring it up because it was at that moment that the entire game flipped, okay? The entire game flipped, and from the time that they were down 74-72, to Duke outscored Michigan State 13-4 to to end the— 13-2, to excuse me, to end the game. Final score, 85-76. And look— I know it's fun to joke about Duke. I know it's fun to criticize them. I know it's fun to say they stink and they're this and they're that. And oh my God, Coach K, and they get all the calls. They just made more plays down the stretch on, on Sunday afternoon. I think they deserve credit. They're a, they're a young team. They don't have very many veterans. And that, that was my big concern when they fell down two with three minutes to go. I said, they're playing fast. They're playing like a bunch of freshmen. They stayed calm. They made plays. They win. Duke now advances to the Sweet 16. They have a really tough matchup with Texas Tech uh, in, in their regional. That is the West Regional, by the way, where Arkansas and Gonzaga will play uh, another game. Gonzaga, of course, taking care of Memphis on Saturday night. 
really quickly. Uh, I'd also be remiss. I know I've been saying I'd be remiss if I didn't, but I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that North Carolina game. Uh, that North Carolina game against Baylor was crazy, okay? And if you didn't see it, North Carolina was up 25 points with about 10 minutes to go. They have a transfer from Oklahoma named Brady Manick who has turned into like the modern-day Larry Bird over the last three or four weeks at North Carolina. But he was absolutely incredible. And he gets ejected from the game for there was just – he gets tangled up and he kind of throws an elbow and I don't think he should have gotten ejected. But he gets thrown out of the game. They're up 25 points. A few minutes later, their starting point guard Caleb Love fouls out. And all of a sudden, North Carolina can't get the ball past half court. They were up 25 points with eight minutes to go. And every single play, they're turning the ball over. They're throwing it away. They're taking a bad shot. They, you know, they get it past half court, and they attack the basket, and they get called for a charge. And it was funny because I, I was watching people react to it on social media, and I saw people, oh, this is the craziest game ever. March Madness at its finest. I'm like, no, this is actually March Madness at its worst. This is like one of the worst games that I have ever seen. Um, but North Carolina holds on. It ended up going to overtime. Really, really, really weird game. But North Carolina ends up winning. Let me say this, man. I'll give a quick credit to Hubert Davis. I was obviously very, very, very critical of him in the middle of the season. I do think it was justified. They were losing a lot of games by a lot of points. My biggest concern at that time was you got a veteran team this year as is. Caleb Love, RJ Davis, Brady Manick. You got older guys in this program, Armando Baycott. And I said, look, this might be the best team you have for a while. So you got to take care of business right now. I do give him credit in terms of North Carolina. They have played much better over the final two or three weeks of the season. Um, you know, they finished the regular season, obviously, with that great win at Duke. Overall, they won their final five games of the regular season, win a game in the ACC tournament. They eventually lost to that Virginia Tech team, which won the ACC tournament. But I give North Carolina a lot of credit because they have seemingly turned the season around. They are now in the Sweet 16 where they will face UCLA. Um, I really think that's it. I'm trying to think of what else I missed. First of all, credit Iowa State. I know I talked about a minute ago. Iowa State went had two wins last year during the COVID season, did not win a game in Big 12 play. They end up somehow getting the right draw. They get LSU without a head coach. They take care of LSU. They get Wisconsin. Wisconsin's point guard goes down. And this is not to not give them credit for what they've done, but Iowa State is going to the Sweet 16. Credit T.J. Otzelberger, the head coach at Iowa State, as Iowa State headed to the Sweet 16. Texas Tech is also advancing. There's a uh, you know, bunch, of, bunch of really interesting teams that are in this second weekend, of course. I'd be remiss if I also did not mention the St. Peter's Peacocks. I'm going to wrap with St. Peter's. I don't know what else there is to say. I don't know what else there is to say about St. Peter's. I said it on Thursday when it came to the Kentucky game. I actually spent a ton of time doing prep work on St. Peter's in the lead up to the tournament. And I'm telling you, there was nothing that I saw that made me believe that they were a team that could even keep things close with Kentucky, let alone beat Kentucky, let alone win a second game against Murray State. Came into the tournament averaging 66 points per game. Came into the tournament negative assist to turnover ratio. Don't have a starter above six foot seven. And yet they're headed to the Sweet 16. Congratulations to St. Peter's. And the cool part about it is, Oh, by the way, they're playing that Sweet 16 game in Philly about an hour from campus. Whew, that was a lot. That was a lot. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Obviously, it's really late. It's about 2.30 Eastern time here as I record. But I just want to get out my thoughts. I kind of just want to spill them out and just talk about everything that happened this weekend. Great weekend, crazy weekend. Shout out to all of you guys and girls. If you have a team in the Sweet 16, if not, 
This is still a great tournament. It's just a fun time of year. It's a fun time of year. And by the way, if it makes you feel any better, whether you're an Auburn fan, whether you're a Tennessee fan, whether you're a Kentucky fan, whether you're a USC fan, whether whatever, I'm a UConn fan. My team's out too. It's still a really, really fun tournament. It's okay to be frustrated with your individual team or individual coach and also really, really, really enjoy March Madness. So what I'm going to do, I do want to take a quick break. I do want to come back, and I do want to discuss a little bit of coaching carousel stuff. So, so this coaching carousel stuff, it felt like last year it was bigger with all the big jobs that opened. Indiana, North Carolina happened later in the calendar. It opened in April. Arizona opened in April. So it felt like we did more coaching carousel stuff last year. But a couple jobs have, op- have, have opened, and a couple have actually closed. Florida has a new head coach. I want to talk about that. Uh, Mississippi State has a new coach who, if you watch that Arkansas-New Mexico State game, you know that guy could be a problem in the SEC. And then finally, I would say, friend of the Aaron Torres pod, Sean Miller, is headed back to Xavier. I talk about all of that. That's coming up next. All right, we're going to get back to the college hoops in a minute. But before we do, it's March. The tournament is here, and DraftKings Sportsbook has an incredible offer for first-time users that want to make a wager on one of these college basketball games. Sweet 16 coming up, Elite 8 coming up, Final 4 coming up, National Championship game. You can get your bet in. Here's how it works, and this is the offer. Make a $5 money line bet on any team this coming weekend. If you like Gonzaga, if you like Arkansas, if you like Kansas, if you like Providence, all you got to do is bet $5 on them to win. And if they win, you get $200 in free cash courtesy of the DraftKings Sportsbook. Best deal going. Here's how it works. Click the link in the show description and sign up for a new account with the DraftKings Sportsbook and make your first deposit. Make a $5 bet on any team. And if your team wins... You get an automatic $200 in free bets thanks to our friends at DraftKings and the DraftKings Sportsbook. It's the best offer going in sports betting. $5 money line bet, $200 in free bets if it wins. Best offer going, act now. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem, crisis counseling and referral services can be accessed by calling 1-800-GAMBLER, 1-800-426-2537 in Illinois. Gambling problem, call 1-800-GAMBLER in Michigan, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Wyoming, 1-800-9 within Indiana, 1-800-522-4700 in Colorado, 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa, 1-888-532-3500 in Virginia, 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona, or call or text Tennessee Redline, 1-800-889-9789 in Tennessee. Must be 21 plus or over to enter, 18 plus or over in Wyoming, Arizona, Colorado, Illinois, Indiana, Iowa, Michigan, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, Virginia, West Virginia, Wyoming, Louisiana, New York only. Minimum $5 deposit, minimum $5 bait wager. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com Sportsbook for full terms and conditions. All right, everybody. I am back. Going to be back, going to be back. Want to switch gears now. Uh, start to wrap the show, obviously. Fun show. A lot happened on the court this week. But a lot is going on off the court as well, where the college basketball coaching carousel is really ramping up, right? And that's kind of how this time of year works. The good teams, they keep on playing. The bad teams, once their conference tournament ends, they're firing their head coach. And that leads to a trickle-down effect, other jobs open, all that good stuff. And so really over the last couple weeks, we've gotten a lot of change and a lot of things are starting to come into picture, right? 
Last week, Monday's episode, we talked about Florida. Uh, we talked about Georgia. Mike White from Florida to Georgia. Still don't really understand that one. Uh, LSU obviously had fired Will Wade. And over the last four, five, six days since we really hit on coaching carousel stuff, there has been a lot of movement in terms of coaches. Now, what I would say is there's a couple jobs that are still basically technically open, but we know where it's going to go. Maryland is going to hire Seton Hall head coach Kevin Willard. Uh, if you saw Kevin Willard's post-game press conference on Friday after they lost to TCU in the NCAA tournament, Kevin Willard made it pretty clear he is not going to be the Seton Hall head coach next year. So when that one happens, we'll talk about it. Same with Dennis Gates, the Cleveland State coach. Looks like he is set to be the Missouri head coach. My understanding is that there's some administrative stuff that just has to get taken care of, HR stuff, all that good stuff. But Dennis Gates will be the next head coach in Missouri. We'll discuss that one a little bit when it becomes official later this week. But let's focus on the ones that have been filled over the last four, five, six days. And I would argue the single biggest one is the Florida Gators. Florida for years under Mike White was not very good. Florida, I think they got kind of a get out of jail free card. Mike White snuck out the side door, it goes to Georgia. And on Friday, Florida hired San Francisco head coach Todd Golden. And so we have a lot of Gators fans who listen to this show, a couple that follow us on YouTube. And so it felt appropriate to hit this one and really take a deep dive. And let me just say this, Gators fans, I love you. I love your enthusiasm for basketball. I was the guy that pushed harder than anybody that Mike White wasn't the answer. But I'll just say this. I get why the Todd Golden hire was made, but I'll also be honest. I don't really like that one very much. And so let's get into it. Let's explain why. And I'm sorry to ruin your Monday morning here, Gators fans. But the bottom line is a couple things. So first of all, who is Todd Golden, right? So Todd Golden, as I just said, the head coach of San Francisco, the San Francisco Dons, they just made basically their first ever for their first NCAA tournament in like 25 plus years. And to their credit, they made it as an at-large team. They come from the WCC, the same conference as Gonzaga. I will give Todd Golden credit. It is really, really, really hard to put together an at-large caliber resume in that league, especially if you don't have wins over Gonzaga, which San Francisco did not have. So credit to him, first round, NCAA tournament, lose to Murray State, but it was by far the best season the program has had in a very long time, make the NCAA tournament as an at-large. And really, this is uh, you know the third year for Todd Golden, and really the program is very much on the rise. Now, in terms of what makes him different, what makes him special, what appealed to Florida, he is very much known as an analytics guy, okay? So, you know, the analytics stuff is sweeping sports. Uh, we saw it in the NFL with Brandon Staley going for it and, you know, on his own 10-yard line or whatever. Uh, it's obviously coming to college football and the NFL and Major League Baseball, NBA, all that stuff. And so Todd Golden has really taken it to another level at San Francisco. And in many ways, that led to their success. They play a certain way. He makes decisions that other head coaches wouldn't make. I think it helped with their scheduling. They were very smart in how they scheduled the types of teams that they scheduled to put themselves in position to get an at-large bid. So that is why Florida likes Todd Golden. If you read kind of the commentary from Scott Strickland, the AD, the press releases, the comments, new age, young, creative, unique thinker. That is the sell to Florida fans on Todd Golden. I do have some problems with that sell, though, so let's get into those. And first of all, what I would say is this. This is not a discredit to Todd Golden. 36 years old has shot up the coaching ranks, okay? At the same time, while he gets all this credit for the, all this crazy new age analytics, all that good stuff, he wasn't the one that originally started it at San Francisco. 
He came to San Francisco as an assistant. He was actually at Auburn for a year or two, comes to San Francisco, and when he gets to San Francisco, there's another guy there by the, by the name of Kyle Smith. Kyle Smith gets to San Francisco. This is back in the 2016-2017 season. He sees Gonzaga. He sees St. Mary's and says, we got to do this a different way. And so he brings that analytics mindset to San Francisco. And Kyle Smith, in his own regard, had three very good years at San Francisco. 20 and 13, 22 and 17, 21 and 10, three straight 20 win seasons for Kyle Smith. And then he bounces out to Washington State, where he has been the last three years. They finished 20 and 14 this year and fifth in the Pac 12. So the idea, first of all, the thing with Todd Golden, he inherited an already good situation. To his credit, he did elevate it, but at the same time, we can't sit here and say that at 36 years old, he completely built this program from the ground up. No, 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 no. He took a good program. He took a program that had already been built, and to his credit, again, took it to another level. But the guy, Kyle Smith, who's now at Washington State, really does get a lot of credit for the success that San Francisco has. Uh, a lot of the players that were on this year's team, a much older group, Jamari Bouye, who we talked about a lot on this show over the last couple weeks heading into the NCAA tournament, uh, Khalil uh, Shabazz, all these guys, some of them came from the previous coaching staff and Todd Golden inherited them. And it's not like even prior to this year, Todd Golden was lighting the world on fire. Now, last year was a COVID year. Give him a little bit of a pass. The year before, 22-12. and 12, So very good at San Francisco. This year, they were exceptionally good, made an NCAA tournament. But I'm just not sold that this is some new age, like, uh, you know, he, he's so far ahead of everyone else. And really, that is where the issue comes in for me, right? In terms of the analytics stuff, listen, to be clear. I am not anti-analytics. Let's just put that out there. I am not anti-analytics, okay? I'm not anti-analytics. I think they have value. I think they're important in evaluating the grand scheme of everything. But at the end of the day, let's never forget that analytics at its most surface level, analytics are designed to give you a small, they're designed to give you any little tiny advantage that you possibly can, right? So like, Going back to the original analytics, which is Moneyball, it was there was a market inefficiency with guys who can get on base via walk. You get on base via walk, um, you know, you take a lot of pitches, you wear down the other pitcher, you get into the bullpen earlier, on and on and on. I'm not going to uh, bore you with analytics talk, but analytics are never designed to just build a team into a power. They are designed to give you incremental edges throughout the game. And here's the problem with that mindset going into the SEC. It is, in fact, the SEC. And so with due respect to Todd Golden and all his spreadsheets and all his pie charts and all his analytics, you know what's more important than analytics? Having really, really, really good players. And so when I look at what he did in San Francisco, it is very impressive. It's not to say that it cannot work at Florida. But let's also look at some of the big games that he had this year. He played Gonzaga three times this season. And you can love Gonzaga. You can hate him. They're overrated. They're this, they're that, they're whatever. The bottom line is he went 0-3 against Gonzaga. So how much did the analytics really help when the best team he played all year, he went 0-3 against them? And it's not to say that he should beat Gonzaga, but the point remains, if like, like the point remains, how many other t guys that went 0-3 against their best team in their league got jobs this year? And so the idea that these analytics are going to come to the SEC and we're going to take over and we're going to do things different, uh, I'm going to take the team with players, okay? I'm going to take the teams that are well-coached, that, that, you know, it goes back to what I've said at the most fundamental level about the SEC. The SEC have a, have a, have a, has a bunch of guys as head coaches who check all the boxes, okay? I know it's easy to crush John Calipari on a day like today, 
But John Calipari recruits his butt off. His teams are generally, certainly not last Thursday against St. Peter's, but generally well-prepared, ready to go in big games. They did, to their credit, beat North Carolina, beat Tennessee, beat Kansas this year. He checks a lot of boxes. Eric Musselman certainly checks a lot of boxes at Arkansas, where the Hogs are going to the Sweet 16 for the second straight year. Oh, by the way, they have two McDonald's All-Americans coming in next year and the number two recruiting class in the country. Number three recruiting class in the country, it's Alabama and Nate Oates. You can say it didn't work this year, wasn't the right chemistry, it was whatever. Nate Oates is going to have players as long as he is at Alabama. Same with Bruce Pearl at Auburn. Same with, uh, you know, Rick Barnes at Tennessee. And so when I look at this hire from Todd Golden, I get that it's cool and it's new age and he's young and he's got all the spreadsheets. Well, those dudes got players. And you know what else? It's not as though those guys don't have access to analytics as well. I'm not claiming I have all the answers, but I've talked to Eric Musselman enough to know that dude does value the numbers and that dude does crunch the numbers and that is a big part of what he does. And so Eric Musselman already has all the analytics and he's also got really good players and he's also got tournament experience and he's also got head coaching experience. I don't think he's going to be afraid of some 36-year-old with a spreadsheet, okay? Same with Bruce Pearl. Same with John Calipari. Same with Nate Oates. Same with Rick Barnes. I don't think they're going to be afraid of this kid who has never coached in any level. And so this is not or never coached at, at the high major level. And so this is not a disrespect to him. It's not saying that it can't work, okay? What I will say is I do think his team will be better prepared than Mike White's were. Mike White, obviously my criticism always was never the win-loss record in totality. It was never the NCAA tournament appearances in totality. It was that there were just nights where they came up and they weren't came out and they weren't ready to play. They lost to Texas Southern at home this year. They lost to Ole Miss, one of the worst teams in the SEC this year. They just came out unprepared. I do think Todd Golden's teams will come in prepared. My question is, is he going to be the coach that recruits well enough, that checks enough of those other boxes to have them at the top of the SEC? I do believe that Todd Golden will at least bring a little bit more consistency to the program. I guess I just doubt that in a league with Bruce Pearl, in a league with Rick Barnes, in a league with Eric Musselman, in a league with John Calipari, as much as we criticize him, I'm sorry. 36-year-old spreadsheet, I got my doubts, okay? I got my freaking doubts. Let's move on. Let's talk about some of the other coaching hires from this weekend. And I will say, I don't know that it moved the radar on a national scene, moved the needle on a national scene, but one that really impressed me kind of snuck under the radar on Sunday morning where Chris Jans, the New Mexico State head coach, was hired at Mississippi State, okay? And the reason it probably snuck under the radar, New Mexico State was playing late into the night on Saturday where they faced off against Arkansas in Buffalo. Arkansas wins 53-48, to and just a brutal back-and-forth physical beat-em-up, grind-em-out game. New Mexico State loses, but overall it was a great showing for the Aggies. Obviously, they beat my UConn Huskies in the opening round of the NCAA tournament. Arkansas then goes ahead and beats them in a very close, low-scoring physical game. But on Saturday night, Texas, uh, New, Mexico, New Mexico State, excuse me, they're both the Aggies. Texas A&M and New Mexico State are both the Aggies. In this case, New Mexico State, they do lose. And on Sunday morning, their head coach, Chris Jans, officially accepts the Mississippi State job. And what I would just say is, while I do question the Florida hire of Todd Golden because of fit and logic, I also think that the Chris Jans hire is a perfect fit and a great hire for Mississippi State for the same reason. And so I could get into all the nuance, all the this, all the that, but if you just watch New Mexico State over the last couple games, you know who they are. You know what they're about. They're physical, they're tough, 
They're low scoring. They rebound the crap out of the basketball. They were in the top 20 nationally in rebound rate, which means in terms of total rebounds that go up, there were only 17 teams in college basketball that were better than them over the course of this season. Oh, by the way, Chris Jans, New Mexico State, in terms of their defense, I mean, you just talk about a defensive clinic that they put on in Buffalo, held UConn to 43% from the field, 28% for Arkansas in a win. Arkansas shot 28% from the field. And so again, what it comes down to as far as I'm concerned is that sometimes you just don't have to overthink it. You just got to think about, explain who the head coach is, what he's about, where he's going. And sometimes if you just say it out loud, it makes sense, right? And this, is, this isn't just a, 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 a college basketball thing. So it applies other places as well. Lincoln Riley, USC, young, dynamic, handsome, uh, you know, fun offense. Oh, he's going to Hollywood. Oh, that one makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, I'm trying to think of the opposite. Brian Kelly remains to be seen. Northerner, Boston, never been in the SEC footprint. That wasn't as universally loved and respected of a hire, even though I personally liked it, as Lincoln Riley was. Lincoln Riley, young offense that's just dynamic as heck. Hollywood, big bright lights. Like, it makes sense. And I think you can kind of do that on a much smaller scale with the Chris Jans hire at Mississippi State. To go back to what I just said with Todd Golden a minute ago, just think about it. Just say it out loud. Todd Golden coming from San Francisco, analytics-based, numbers, data, this, that. Now he's going to the SEC. The SEC, we all know, is about recruiting. It's about, uh, you know, big brands. It's about we don't care. It just means more. It just doesn't mean more spreadsheets and printouts. It means you better eat, sleep, and breathe whatever sport you're coaching. It's not just football. It's basketball. It's baseball. It's gymnastics. It's softball. You better eat, sleep, and breathe it. You better be able to recruit. You better be able to uh, deal with boosters. You better be able to deal with pressure. That is the SEC. It's not San Francisco spreadsheets, analytics, whatever. And so I bring it up because when you talk out Chris Jans, when you talk out who he is, what New Mexico State's about, I think it kind of makes sense for Mississippi State. Think about what I just said. New Mexico State dominates their league in the regular season, takes care of business, doesn't have nights off, under Chris Jans, 28 and 6 his first year, 30 and 5 his second year, 25 and 6 before COVID canceled the 2020 NCAA tournament, 12 and 8 last year, 27 and 7 this year. But think about how they play. Tough, physical, grueling, grind them out. Those Arkansas guys after the game were talking about how physical, how tough that game is. And so you think about what kind of coach Mississippi State wants or should want going into the next era post Ben Howland. This is kind of it, right? Mississippi State, and this is no disrespect to any state fans that are listening, you're never going to get the five-star McDonald's All-Americans. I mean, you may get one or two here or there. There may be a good player coming out of the state of Mississippi that you're able to get, but you're not going to get the Kentucky, the guys that Kentucky gets. You're not going to get the guys that Tennessee gets. You're probably not going to get the guys that Arkansas is getting because Arkansas every year produces generally probably about three, four, five top 100 recruits, and Eric Musselman's cleaning up on all of them. Jalen Williams, Devo Davis, both from Arkansas, uh, whatever, a McDonald's All-American, Nick Smith coming in from Arkansas. So the point I'm trying to make, when you go to Mississippi State, you're never going to have the most talent, and essentially you're just going to have to outwork everybody, play harder, be more physical, be tougher, grind out wins. 
And so that's why I like this hire because I truly believe that Chris Jans is that kind of guy and will bring that level of toughness to Mississippi State. Now, I know that was kind of Ben Howland's reputation when he came in. Oh, he's a grinder. He's tough. He's rebounding. He's physical. Let's all be honest. Ben Howland was kind of checked out these last five, six years, right? Made all his money at UCLA. I think UCLA in many ways broke him. He was kind of a, a I don't want to say young when he got to UCLA, but he was kind of the hot coach coming in. LA roots, comes to UCLA, has a couple great years, goes to three straight Final Fours, and then that fan base just wore him the heck down. By the time he got to Mississippi State, I think he was kind of checked out. This dude, Chris Jans, he's in his early 50s. Uh, this is his big shot, man. This isn't his bounce back job like Ben Howland. This is, I have been working my whole life to get here. This is Oh, by the way, I started as a junior college coach, okay? We talked about it at times with Chris Beard. We've talked about it with Eric Musselman. Guys that don't skip steps, guys that have been at every level, I'll say this, Steve Forbes at Wake Forest. When you coach in junior college, if you can win in junior college, you can win anywhere, and that's what Chris Jans has gone through. He had a personal situation at Bowling Green, got the job there, got fired there short time after. You can Google it. But the point I'm trying to make is this is not a guy that has skipped steps. This is not a guy that was on the fast track. This is not a guy that had the easy route. I think he's going to come to Mississippi State. I think he's going to work his butt off. I think that hire is really, really, really good. And finally, there is one last hire that I do feel like we should talk about. And of course, it, it, it has ties, not of course, but it has ties to the Aerator Sports Podcast because it involves, I guess you would say, a friend of the Aerator Sports Podcast, a guy that I had on about a month, a month and a half ago, and that is Sean Miller, former head coach at Arizona, who accepted the job on Saturday to become the head coach at Xavier. And so, I don't really know what else I can say. I've spent a lot of time talking about Sean Miller, had Sean Miller on this show over the last couple weeks, but I bring it up because I don't really know what I can say about this hire that isn't super obvious, okay? So obviously, Sean Miller went through the NCAA stuff. What I would say is, first of all, you heard from Sean Miller. You know what his deal is. You know what he's accused of and what has been uh, put in the media that simply isn't true. You know that right now there is one level one violation in that Arizona notice of allegations. Sean Miller is not accused of what Will Wade is accused of. Will Wade is accused of pretty much everything. Will Wade's accused of not only paying players and parents, he was paying off a girlfriend of fiance's car note, okay? That is not what Sean Miller is accused of. He is accused of one level one violation, and every school that was interested in him looked into that NCAA investigation and basically came to the conclusion that if we hire him, he's looking at a short suspension, but this guy isn't getting a show cause. He isn't getting thrown out of the sport forever. He isn't a guy that is going to be a liability. And so I thought it was really interesting over the last couple of weeks because one, he's obviously the best candidate available. And two, it appeared as though he had very much you know, interest from multiple places. I got a text late Friday night when I was watching some of these games that South Carolina was really making a push to try to get Sean Miller. And I saw some stuff on social media. I don't know everything that's true and everything that's not true. I did see a report that said that Sean Miller basically turned down more money from South Carolina to go to Xavier because he felt like Xavier was the better fit. I don't know if that's 100% true, but I've seen some credible people and some credible people reached out to me to say that South Carolina really wanted Sean Miller and he chose Xavier instead. And so in terms of the hire itself, all I'll say is shout out to Xavier. You missed the NCAA tournament for four straight years, okay? You want to hear a crazy stat on Xavier. You talk about one of the most consistent programs in college basketball. Prior to Travis Steele, who was their head coach over the last four years, he's the guy that replaced Chris Mack. Prior to Travis Steele, 
Xavier had made the had had finished above 500, above 500 in conference play, 37 straight years. Okay, they were one of the most consistent programs in college basketball. Thad Mata, Sean Miller coached there priorly. Uh, Chris Mack, 37 years they finished above 500 in league play. They finished under 500 four straight years under Travis Steele. And so give Xavier credit. They went out and they got to be blunt. They got the best coach that was available. Now there is clearly baggage, which I just talked about. He will probably face a suspension at some point. But when you talk about an elite program that has fallen on hard times over the last few years, four straight missed NCAA tournaments since Chris Mack left, you just went out and got the best guy. And I say it all the time. I understand Arizona fans that were upset by the end of this whole thing. I understand Arizona fans that say, we have the best program on the West Coast. He did not take us to an NCAA, to a Final Four. What I would also say is, he did over the course of his time at both Xavier and Arizona, seven Sweet 16s, four Elite 8s, two of those Elite 8s, I should mention in Arizona, he lost by one point apiece. 2011, Arizona loses to Kemba Walker and UConn by one point in this, the, the Elite 8. 2014, a game that I was at in Anaheim, Arizona loses by one point to Frank Kaminsky in Wisconsin. And so the point I'm trying to make is I understand an Arizona fan that's like, you got to get us to the Final Four, okay? We are a program that expects to be in the Final Four more than once every 20 years. But at the same time, Xavier, you give that school the coach that spends the seven Sweet 16s and, and four Elite Eights? Oh, they're living good over there. They are happy over there. And I just think it's a great fit. I think it's a great fit because of the coach, because of his success, because of what I believe that he has learned. He talked about it on this show. He said, I've never had more time to watch college basketball. I've learned a ton watching not only you know the, the obvious names, Coach K, John Calipari. I, he readily admitted, I learned a ton watching Tommy Lloyd this year at Arizona. And so now he's going to Xavier, a Big East that I believe is kind of wide open. I mean, Villanova's awesome. Jay Wright's the man. As critical as I was of Dan Hurley, I do believe that he has UConn in a great place at this particular moment. Creighton's really good. But other than that, it's kind of a crapshoot, right? Seton Hall's going to have a new head coach. Butler is struggling. People thought that they might get rid of their head coach this year. He's basically coaching for his job next year. Georgetown, Patrick Ewing coaching for his job next year. Providence is great. But this fight kind of felt like a one-off year. Ed, Curl Ed Cooley had never won more than one NCAA tournament game in a season. He wins two to go to the Sweet 16, playing Kansas to go to the Elite Eight. St. John's, we don't know what their situation is with Mike Anderson. DePaul is kind of DePaul. And so I bring it up is that the Big, the Big East feels like it's in a little bit of a transition right now, and there are certainly wins to be had. So Sean Miller headed to Xavier. I just think they got a really good head coach. I think they got a really good head coach that other schools wanted. South Carolina was after him. I think South Carolina now is probably going to go try to get Matt McMahon from Murray State. But I bring it up to say this was a guy that had options. This is a really good coach. And I'll be blunt, I'm happy that he's back in college basketball after being fired at this time last year. All right, with that said, uh, I think it's time for me to get out of here. Busy show today, fun show today. Appreciate all of you guys and girls for your support, I should say. Thank you for your support because uh, I looked at the numbers on Friday. Uh, single day download record on Friday following that crazy opening round. Unfortunately, low lighted if you're a Kentucky fan by the Kentucky Wildcats losing to St. Peter's. Most downloaded episode, most downloaded day in the history of the Aaron Torres podcast on Friday. Obviously, Saturday and Sunday, we had a ton of downloads as well. So thank you guys for your support. 
Uh, before we get out of here, I want to remind you, make sure that you are subscribed. Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Music, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure to subscribe. We got NCAA Tournament. We got Portal. We'll get back into some college football stuff. I got some fun off-season topics that I really do think that you guys and girls will enjoy. So this, this show ain't slowing down simply because of the fact that College Hoops is coming to an end here over the next week or two. Also, I will be in New Orleans for the Final Four weekend. Uh, I'll be flying back before the games, but going to try to get you some good interviews on the ground in New Orleans. So uh, make sure that you're subscribed. If you're not subscribed, make sure to do so. Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Music. Make sure to rate and review the show. If you guys and girls can, if it's not too much of a, of a hassle, go ahead and uh, give me a quick rating. Five stars would really, really, really help. Make sure you're following on social media at Aaron underscore Torres, at Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com. That is all for today's show. Shout out to Torrent Craig. Shout out to Rachel who hates my voice. I will be back on Wednesday. We got ourselves a sweet 16 to preview, baby. I'll talk to you guys on Wednesday. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.